0: Two very quick announcements. First of all, I'm conducting a survey on you guys, my listeners. Please help me understand who you are and what you want by completing a quick survey, which you can find online on backinamericatthepodcast.com. On the same website, thepodcast.com you will find a link To an internship that I've posted. I'm looking for an intern to help me with the digital marketing and communication of this podcast. So, if you know native American speakers that might be interested, send them to my website. Thank you. Do you know that Back in America is now recording some of its interviews live? The conversation that you are about to hear was recorded and streamed live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. If you missed it, and would like to see us talk, head to one of our social media profiles. If you're tired of arguing with strangers on the internet, try talking with one of them in real life. Welcome to Back in America, the podcast. I'm Stan Bertolo, and this is Back in America. I'm delighted to welcome all of you today to this first live interview of the podcast Back in America. My guest will join us in just a few minutes. He is a model, a dancer, a singer, and an incredible performer. Look him up on Spotify or wherever you get your music, and you will understand why he's such a rising star in this industry. Getting where he is today has been a long and challenging journey. A journey that started in New York with a drug addict father and an abusive stepfather. A journey that took him through homeless shelters and psych wards. Despite the pain and the humiliation, he somehow managed to make it to school, to rehearsal and to castings. His determination and hard work paid off. The Alvin Alley Theatre hired him to do a series of resettles. He won a modeling contract for Seven for Mankind and for Marc Jacob, which led him to his now eight years as a professional model. While working as a dancer and as a model in New York City, he teamed up with Ned Beats and D Gates, who produced and released his early singles. Now living in Los Angeles, he is working with Grammy Award-winning producer Ebony Smith. He is recording his latest music at Atlantic Record and Warner Music Studio. He was even invited to become a member of the Recording Academy and he is now recognized as a Grammy Board, as a recording professional. I am delighted to welcome Derek Cobb. Hello, Derek.
1: Hi, good morning. Well, good afternoon to everyone.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for making the time to be uh, with us today to be uh, in this first live interview. So it's a big first for me. Well, let me start. I, as I you know, said in the intro, you wear many hats. You're a model, a dancer, a singer. How do you define yourself?
1: Um. How do I define myself? If I have to define it, uh, I definitely would say that I'm a, a entertainer and an artist. Um, just because whenever I do something, I take all sides of that, all of my gifts and talents, and I try to c- combine them as much as I can. You know, so when I'm modeling, I use aspects of my dance to get certain shots, certain angles, uh, certain body movements, um, and poses and things like that. You know, when I'm on stage performing, I pick up things from modeling, how to look at your audience, directly, how to captivate people with your presence and like those kind of things. So overall, I would be an artist entertainer for sure.
0: All right. Okay. Well, Derek, I was listening to your latest single, In Love, and I found it quite mellow, more intimate, really more intimate than the previous R&B, Savage AF or Don't Stop. Are you in love?
1: I am. (laughs) Wow. Tell us more. I think everyone knows. Um, I'm I'm married, so uh, it's married. been yeah, four years now. Yes.
0: Okay. Well, you didn't tell me yeah. that when you uh, first spoke yeah. to me. Okay. Good. Um.
1: Yeah. Um. And yeah, it's 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 probably, probably one of the more mellow songs that I've done. I mean, to be honest with you, I really love doing R and B records. I think um just over the years, and you know, over the course of me like working as a musician. I always like these big pop numbers and like these big dance records. It was like a huge dance number, right? And it's that's great because I'm a dance artist and people expect that. But I think for that particular song, I really wanted to just be a bit more vulnerable and more open. I wanted to make it more personal. And I think that song is really kind of defining what the next releases are going to sound like and what they're going to be and what, the, and what the subject matters are. And I just kind of felt like musically, it was time to, you know, open up a bit more personally.
0: Well, I know... It, it- it's been quite a process for you to open up uh would you say that the mask is now down
1: i've gotten better at really recognizing my emotions and really understanding like what's triggering that um i'm a person that i truly believe that everyone should like be themselves so i don't expect people to like tiptoe around me you know so to avoid my trauma i think that's like a very very bad way to kind of live in a sense but i will say i've definitely have been like more open and more honest about like what i'm experiencing and what i'm feeling i think it helps you connect better with people um it helps you connect better with yourself and to be honest with you especially as a musician if i'm not you know if i have my mask on and i'm being so walled up and shelled we can't create good music <laughs> if they don't get to the root of how i'm feeling you know and that's kind of been helping because usually when i'm in the studio with producers before we even start writing or recording we spend about a couple of hours just calm, conversing about what's really on my mind at that moment in time.
0: So, wh- what's the latest in your music life? Any release uh, on the horizon soon?
1: Yes, uh, I just um, got the copyright clearance for my new single. It's called "Won't Let You Down," and it's an acoustic mid-tempo type track for so you. Yeah, the scheduled date for that is going to be October twenty-first.
0: Wow. You know, we are going to go on to the earlier life of Derek Cobb, but I I want to understand today where you are living in Los Angeles, recording, Uh, you've got this new single coming out. What makes you the happiest?
1: What makes me the happiest? Honestly, I'm the happiest when I'm on stage. (laughs) If I'm being honest, I think for every performer, every artist, being able to kind of show your work is, amazing um performance is a different connection between an artist and the an audience member or an artist and a fan and when people hear your music of course they kind of put themselves in, into it and they insert their own ideas and in, in, in how they feel like the story should go and that's a point you want to start those conversations but when you're live you really get a chance to express how you see it and like what you hope it means and you know I think that, that that's what makes me the happiest. I mean, because that's the chance you really get to show your talent. You know, you can't hide your voice. You can't hide your dancing. You can't hide your skill, you know. So that's your chance to really show people like what you can do. So that's why I love being on stage. That makes me the happiest of everything.
0: Has your mom ever seen you perform?
1: Once. Once? once? Yeah.
0: yeah. How, how did that make you feel? And where was that?
1: Uh, this was uh, back in 2018. Um, it was at a club in New York called CLO. It made me feel really good at the time. Um, I don't remember really seeing her like there and not like in a bad way, but it was just so, it was so like the lights were like, the audience was like so black and like, it's just lights on you and like on the dancers, so you really don't get to like, see, like, you can't really tell who's who. So I can see her like, when I watch footage from it, I like see her reacting and responding. So that's really cool.
0: I would like you to take us back to when you were a child growing up in New York. Yeah. Uh, your biological father had left your mom at the time, and yes. a new man had moved in uh, in your home. Yes. So, if you close your eyes, what do you see?
1: Wow, I don't know. Honestly, to me, it was all a blur because, as far as me and my siblings knew, it was one day my dad was here, and then, like, all of a sudden, he wasn't around anymore. And when you're a kid, that's such a fast transaction. Of course, as you get older, you hear. The actual full details of like what happened, you know, the things that were kind of going on. And I think most kids don't really know that their parents are having marital issues, <laughs> you know, until it's actually over. Um, I will say with my my birth mother and my birth father, they made it a very good point to never argue in front of us. Like we've never seen them argue. Um, so when, you know, I hear versions of my, my parents' stories and why they decided to split up, it, it kind of makes sense. You know, my parents were really young and inexperienced and experience. they had kids at you know very early age. And I just remember being a little taken back because my stepfather was very demanding. You know, we were young he was very just like on top of things, like on top of us in ways that we weren't really kind of used to. You know, like I my, our dad was more like fun and kind of laid back and like super chilling. My stepfather was very strict. He was a Jehovah's Witness, and his religious beliefs just had him like it was. It's was almost like he was like a drill sergeant, like crazy at the time. In the beginning, no, it was more so verbal aggression. In the beginning, I I remember just kind of thinking like, first it was kind of weird, like why is he yelling all the time? Because <laughs> once again, because I've never heard my father yell at us or at my mother, uh, and over time. It's like the, it's what abusers do, right? It's classic. What they do, they work their way in and it's one thing one day, then it's two days, and then it's kind of this build up and then you know you're fully immersed in this very, very, you know, confusing, violent situation. I remember us, my parents, my mom and my stepfather got remarried. And then I think we know we were we were leaving our family and friends. We were we were moving upstate New York. And we just left. No explanation. I never got to say goodbye. I didn't say goodbye to our parents. I didn't say goodbye to our relatives. We just left. And now we live in this town where we don't know anyone. And, you know, and that was, like, his mission was to isolate us. <laughs> like, that was, this is the ultimate goal, was to isolate and control us. And I think for my mom, she was, she was in love. I think that my stepfather gave her a sense of security because he, you know, at the time was financially, like, in a very, very good place you know, with four children and my mom was still in nursing school at the time, I think she really was thinking more so along of how to make sure that we were going to be able to live the lives that she always wanted us to live.
0: When did it start to get violent on you?
1: It got heavy when I remember being in the seventh grade and I remember waking up and my stepfather and my mom were like in a huge argument. So, you know, naturally like any. Kid would do. You try to run to your mom, the fence, and like I just remember a fence just like really just flying at my face. Father, my grandfather never hit me, so that was kind of. It really shocked me. I didn't really know what to do, and I'm standing there just like with this blank stare on my face, and then he looked at me and just like wailed at me again, and it was kind of like the devil was staring at me at my eye, and I I started to cry, and I could I just walked away, and my mom looked at me, and she didn't say anything. You know, I don't think she even knew how to respond or what to say at that time. And I think at that point, because nothing was really done to protect us or there wasn't any repercussion for that action. You know, like I said, we were, at this point, we're away from our family and our known environment. It's nothing we can do. (laughs) You know, you just deal with it. And so I remember going to bed, waking up and being told when we got to school to make sure that, you know, that wasn't discussed and we never, we didn't tell anyone what was happening and we were instructed not to do so by him and her.
0: Well, and uh, at the time, did you know that you were gay?
1: Uh, I kind of did, if I'm being honest with you, but I wasn't. I was like, I was in middle school, (laughs) you know, you're 12, 11, 12, 13. I don't really think that you are thinking about your sexuality in terms of like being intimate or, you know, being sexually active. Um, and I kind of think what 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 kind of makes it a little funny is because my stepfather would make comments and he would say things like, oh, fag is this and that. and He would be very verbally allowed with it in front of me. And that's really when I started to kind of figure out what that was. But initially I kind of think, I, I noticed that a lot. I think a lot of adults, when they see behavior that they don't necessarily classify as, you know, a boy acts like this or a girl acts like that, they start spewing out all these judgments. And I think for most kids, who are gay, in the beginning, you really don't know that until someone actually starts to really put that in your brain. You know, you start to kind of say, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, because you're not really thinking of it. You just like this song. You don't care if it's a Britney Spears song. You just like the song, it's a great song. <laughs> Everyone's singing the song, you know, or you're doing it dance because you see it on TV. It's like, oh, this is cool, it's great. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I, I started to realize, but I think he definitely knew and like his, that, that was like the shift. Like in energy, it went from that to him controlling who I hung out with. I couldn't hang out with friends. Like it was almost kind of positioning me in a way to hang out with kids who were not really the most influential in good ways. You know, he much rather me hang out with the street kids.
0: All right. <laughs> wow. To to tough you up, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you told me that at one point your mom kicked you out of the house. How did that happen? us back to that day
1: just long story short really we um me and my stepfather had like i said we've always gotten into it he's always gotten into it with us um so it was by this point you know i'm 17 you become a young adult you're in high school i'm looking at colleges that i want to go to you know like i'm like on the rod of what i call planning my escape (laughs) you know i remember at the time i literally signed up for every extracurricular activity that you could possibly imagine. I'm talking from football to basketball to dance practice, to choir rehearsals, to band. I even learned how to play the tuba for a week (laughs) just so that way I could like stay active and not really be home so much. And, um, you know, it was one of those those times he was kind of fitting in a rage. And he literally, I remember him kind of giving her the ultimatum of, you know, like he has to go, I have to go. And it was very clear to me that I was the person who was going to believe in. And then the next day was, yeah, you can't destroy my marriage. You can't destroy my family. So you, you mm-hmm. know, you need to start being on your own. And then I just remember just, I just left. I, at that point I felt completely unwanted. Like it, it was just nothing. It was, I just, it was nothing for me to really say. I just left. I just like, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew at that point, I, I didn't belong there anymore. So what did wanted. you do?
0: Where did you go? What happened that night?
1: I went to my cousin's house, you know, and it was kind of regular. Like, you know, it was just another day of me hanging out with my cousin and my friends. You know, it wasn't really like and it, it wasn't really like a big deal to me at the time. You're like, OK, cool. You're young. You think you're ambitious. You, you, you think, you, you know, you're you're not afraid of the world, you know, when you're 17 years old. It, it, You know, like I get to just like do what I want and like go to my cousin's house to hang out. And then, you know, as the time progressed and you start to gather your things and you kind of move in and out, um, it became a little scary. And what happened eventually was I met someone who ended up becoming like my first serious like relationship. And that person was way older than me. He was 33 at the time. And you were? 17. Yeah. I was a kid. And I just remember him saying, hey, you know, you want to stay here with me, you can. And looking back on it, I had no idea this would be probably one of the worst decisions I would ever make. Ever.
0: Yeah. Do you mind talking about that? I I heard of a particularly terrible event a night when he got you drunk. Mhm. What happened?
1: Um it was a very tumultuous relationship. It was very rocky. Um in the sense of where he would be get very upset with me because he says to me I was too ambitious. Like he would always like do you want to do so much and he's like you should, should just graduate high school and get a job. <laughs> I'm like okay. <laughs> you know, um and so yeah, you know, he was interested in engaging in a lot of sexual activities that I really had no interest in. Like I said, I was a kid at the time. I had no clue what any of that stuff was. You know, I didn't even know. I was barely having sex with him, if I'm being very honest. I just wasn't into it at the time. And to be honest with you, my self-esteem was very low, so I never really felt like attractive or sexually desired in any way you know I just wasn't that type of kid it just really wasn't something that I focused energy on so you know his older friends would always make these comments for me and like these you know sexual innuendos and I just always ignored it and I you know looking back on it I definitely felt like it was conspired to gang rape me because that's what happened and he was the person facilitating the entire the entire thing the entire thing um you know i never drank before i wasn't doing drugs and we were out at the restaurant and he was like literally like making me do like eat all this food and drink all this stuff and i had i had no clue and i was getting sick at the restaurant i was I'm like, oh my gosh i don't feel well. Like, i don't feel well. Like. He's like oh you're fine you're fine Just drink some more of this drink some more of that you know like the first time you ever get trashed like you don't know what that feels like <laughs> until you until it happens
0: so so that night you got raped yes and And what's next?
1: Um, The next day, I remember just kind of like waking up and just being really, really pissed. Um, I called the police. I went to the ambulance. I went to the hospital. And they um, honestly, they kind of told me that, you know, this is what people your age do. Like, you know, they were like, you know, what black gay men are known for engaging in like these group activities. So we can't really say it's right. And no one wanted to help me. And I like immediately felt like this little, like this small, (laughs) like I felt that small, that fast. And so I just kind of retreated away. I didn't really talk to anyone for a while. And a couple of days after the incident, that's when I got the call that the shelter that I was applying to, I already applied to the homeless youth shelter prior to the incident, that's when I got a phone call from them saying, like, hey, you know, we have space if you want to come do your intake and you can like pack your stuff and come. So I kinda did that. And like I didn't talk to anyone for like a couple weeks. Um I got really, really sick and I decided to go on a ski trip with my friends. <laughs> you know, I'm like, listen, like I've never been skiing before, this is gonna be fun. So we go on the ski trip and on the way to the, the ski trip, I get a phone call from the nurse telling me the, so the shelter had, uh you had to do a physical, right, to to, to be in, enrolled into the program and to make sure that all your health and stuff was up. And then, um yeah, you know, when I got back, you know, the nurse, my counselor, the program director, they all like came into the room. And honestly, like when they all walked in the room, that's when I kind of just knew like what the next statement was going to be but like I knew she was about to tell me that I was HIV positive like I knew that like I saw that like I just knew it I knew it I knew it then I knew, it. I, knew it. I knew it I knew it
0: how did you I react
1: I didn't I didn't I didn't react I didn't cry I didn't I went back upstairs to the room and closed the door and fell asleep I didn't react I didn't react for a while I didn't react I didn't react yeah, i didn't talk to anyone but i didn't react
0: well how long did it take you to just accept it and do something about it
1: i got, was going to the doctors going to hospitals like doing all that stuff you know uh regular schmegler stuff and i think my the my my he was my doctor for a very long time actually his name was also Derek. his name was dr Derek walker <laughs> i remember meeting him and you know, when I, when I sign off the paperwork, you know, and he goes, you know, I'm an HIV specialist, that's when I completely just like broke down. Because I knew from this point on that I would be seeing this person like every, you know, for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, and um, it was it it just it crashed on me. So every time I would go, I would just cry, like he. It would all just like be an hour of me just like crying my eyes out, crying my eyes out, crying my eyes out. Um. I a couple of months. So this incident was in April, um, of two thousand nine. The following year, my uncle, my mom's youngest brother, he was getting married, and um. You know, it was to see, you know, my uncle always had like these very like heartbreaking like relationships. So to see him finally like meet the, the woman of his dreams and, you know, it's like get married. It just kind of was like, oh, oh wow. But that, that's something that I'll never experience. Like at the time I thought that like I'll, I'll never experience that or I'll never be um, loved in that type of way, you know? And like that it really, that's when it broke me. And then I started to tell my friends and family, like, following that. So it took me a while to even say it out loud. And,
0: and when in the process did you try to commit suicide?
1: Shortly after that incident, um, I, that happened. a week later, someone in my family had made a statement that I was never allowed to come to their house. And that's when I was like, okay, like, no one wants me. I'm not loved. I don't have anybody. And like, that's when you, you know, like you get reprimanded for being yourself. Like people don't want you because you're gay, because you're black, because you're this and you're that. And I just was kind of like, yeah, this is kind of the end. And I went back to the shelter room and I literally just started ODing on prescription painkillers. And my roommate, uh, Rayshawn, hi, Rayshawn, <laughs> um, thank God for him. He was the one who called the guidance counselor and then they they took me to a mental hospital. They took me to Mount Sinai, uh, the site for there. It's in New York, on like 100th Street in Madison Avenue.
0: How was it there?
1: I don't know. I I was kind of, I, was, I remember feeling really disappointed that I woke up. I remember feeling that, like oh, I was like, "Oh, fuck, it didn't work and And then when I said that, they were like, "Yeah, we got like you have to do inpatient care." so they I stayed there for like a month and a half, two months.
0: yeah, wow. and who were your role model at the time? Whom did you look up to? How did you manage to grab life again?
1: Um, I don't know, so one like after the I got out, you know. Things were kind of a blur. I was you know nineteen twenty things are really, really you know it's been a couple of years so now it was two thousand let me see eleven two thousand twelve, you know nineteen and twenty you doing all this stuff, so I'm partying every day, like now I'm able to go out to clubs and i
0: so hold on that's that's after this episode, right that's after yeah. you commit suicide. Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. So you know, I'm like, okay, great. So I'm still here with what's the next thing. So when most young people do, or people with any type of issue, they try to do things to mask it. So I was drinking a lot and partying all the time. I mean, every weekend, like me and my friends, we would like do all these like side jobs, get enough money to get an outfit, go to the club and like drink and party and party and party and party. And I just kind of remember being at my friend's house one day and We were literally like, you know, and I'm still living in a homeless shelter at this time. Like I'm still there, you know, my time is coming down. It's like, it's almost time for me to start phasing out. You're only allowed to stay for uh, 18 months. The maximum is two years. That's the maximum. And uh, I was super drunk. We had literally no food in the refrigerator. (laughs) We had nothing to eat. We were like hungover, laying on the floor. I was like pissy laying on the floor. I'm being very honest, and I just remember thinking, like, I just kind of said it out loud. I was like, dear God, like, this can't be life.
0: You tried to commit suicide. You were about to move out of your shelter. You passed out on your friend's floor, and you realize that, hey, there must be something else. Life is not just about that. And that's sort of where you grab the energy to move on, right? what happened in your in your mind at that time?
1: Well, at the time, the day the day that we partied, that the day that I had that, that revelation, right? I was all celebrating because I had got a job at a gym.
0: <laughs>
1: I got a job at Equinox. Equinox, you know, at the time was is like a high end gym, you know, it's like the creme de la creme. And um I was scheduled to start a couple of days afterwards and I just kinda of remember thinking like, you know what, if I really like, you know, I really want to, like, do well at this job, and I really want to, like, make good money, and, like, you know, I hear so many great things. I need to kind of be on it, I think, and I think that also, too, I just always, like I said, I always knew I had bigger plans for myself. Even as a kid, I always dreamed big. I always thought big. I always had creative ideas. You know, I went to perform my arts high school, you know, most of my life, so I always wanted to kind of do those things, and. You know, I think once the doctors told me that if I just stay on top of my regimen and I would have a normal life expectancy, like any other person in my age group, I was like, okay, you know, so maybe I, I need to give myself a fair chance at like really trying to do other things besides worry about, you know, things that are still having negative effects on me. And so, yeah, it just it, it's kind of like I said before. When you call it out to the universe, it starts to manifest itself. It's something powerful in, in in saying what you want out loud. There's so much truth behind that statement. I I think the tongue is a very powerful tool,
0: for and at sure. Time you were also uh, in the Cindy Lopez program, right? Which is a mm-hmm. shelter that helps you get back on your feet. So t- yeah. tell us more about uh, it's True Color United, I believe
1: yes so the program pretty much was allowing you to um live at a residency in any neighborhood that you chose you chose where they had like uh apartments available and it allowed you to kind of stay there without really worrying about paying your rent <laughs> right so i was kind of like okay cool so i can stay here save up so that that was my plan my plan was to stay stay there work this job get promoted save some money and then you know be ready to be on my own like that was the plan like that was my plan and then other things happened
0: <laughs> what happened
1: what happened other things happened um while i worked at the gym um one of the clients came to me and you know i had i you know prior to all this i had to, a semester at nyu and i couldn't afford the dance program anymore because i didn't have the money um and uh one of the, a client of mine had uh, at the gym I was working at had told me about this place in New York called Broadway Dance Center and I didn't know what that was um at the time or how it would play such a have a huge impact on me and like my my life really and um like you know like all the teachers that teach at these schools they do drop-in classes at these studios so you should go in and like try to get a a work-study job there. And I'm like, work-study? She said, yeah, you know, rather than pay you in money, they pay you in classes. So the more shifts you work, the more classes you get to take. And I was like, you're kidding. (laughs) So I applied for the work-study job and got the job. And honestly, because I wasn't paying rent at the time, I started working less at the gym and being more at the studio. (laughs) And I went to this audition. And that's when I booked my first recital at Alvin Ellie. Wow. <laughs> and it was kind of like. And you know what though, looking back on it, I don't. I think they were more it they were more into my determination because I had just started really training. You know, I haven't. I I never done ballet and jazz. I was always just naturally a good dancer. But I think they appreciated that I was like taking the classes outside of you know, my just being a naturally gifted dancer or just a person who can dance. And I worked my ass off. I'm talking 16-hour days, four classes a day, eight hours of rehearsal. Like, I want, oh my gosh. I No wanted more drinking? So bad. No, more no like, but that, you, you can't. Like, your body won't allow you to. Like, you can't. You can't party and drink and do that level of work. It won't work. Like, you would embarrass yourself and you would you do your body a disservice to be honest with you like you need like as a dancer your muscles are everything so things like eating improperly not working out drinking it breaks you down so there's no way
0: and i'm trying to understand what was happening in your mind that was really pushing you to do that i mean how come all of a sudden you go from being a party animal uh wanting to kill yourself to being there, working so hard to achieve something. What is it that you were trying to achieve at the time?
1: Um, A lot of things. I think a part of you wants to you still want to be accepted in some way, shape or form. You know, you still want a chance at being loved in some way, shape or form. And I honestly would kind of say to myself, you know, before I die, at least let me try to make my dreams come true. That was always kind of what I would say to myself, Um, you know, And my doctor would say, why are you saying that? Like, your health is A1, like you're in great shape. Like, why would you say that? And like, I'm like, well, I just feel that way. You know, I always felt that way. You know, whether it's going to be death by this or death by suicide, I always thought, you know, if I can make my dreams come true before that, you know, it'll be, it'll say something, it'll be worth something, you know? And if if I do this and I do that and I accomplish this and I accomplish that, like, you know, then my parents will come back and they'll, love me more and they'll be want to be around me more like you know that was always kind of the motivation especially in the beginning that like i would always kind of kind of hope that like let me do something great and then go back around them to see if, if this is enough for them you know
0: so we we get the dance thing we get the performance where does the music come into play there <laughs>
1: so what happened was um i was yeah i was dancing at alvin and i met this woman uh, named Genesis B. Uh, she was a rapper at the time. And one of her friends, Nia, was dancing at the Alvin Ailey program I was in at the time. So we went to this gig and Nia was like, hey, I'm back up dancing for this artist. You should come and like, just hang out with us. And I'm like, sure, I would love to go. I love live shows. Like, <laughs> kind I of go to the show? And Genesis is rapping or whatever. And she says, hey, I would love to know if there is any songwriters in the room so I'm like oh I know how to write a song and that's (laughs) so we talked and then I wrote this song and then like the next day we were sitting in Washington Square Park and I like literally like sang the song (laughs) and danced the dance in like front of her (laughs) (laughs) and she was like hey great cool you know we were she was trying to get the song written for another artist um, at the time and when I, I wrote a song called Mannequin Boy and that person, he didn't really like the song. So her and the producer, um, his name was Nate Beats, He they were just like, why don't you keep the song and, and put it out? And when it happened, I was like, oh, this is so cool. So that my mind went to, okay, I need to get a vocal coach. I need to be trained I actually study music. I need to get music theory books. I need to watch all this. Like I just wanted to be great at it. So I thought it was like such a great opportunity, you know? And then it just kind of snowballed <laughs> from there.
0: So it snowballed, it snowballed to you leaving New York and moving to L.A. How yes. did that happen?
1: Well, as um, we fast forward <laughs> to late 2018. Um, so after pretty much all that stuff, you know, I was modeling, contract, dancing, Recording music. I met my very first personal music manager. Her name was Crystal Alfred. Um, she runs a entertainment company called TE Music. And when I met Crystal and she was, she was very interested in managing me as an artist and developing me. And I was like, okay, like this is like what I've been praying for since I was a kid. And, um, so we got together in twenty fourteen, um, just kind of talk. In twenty fifteen, we decided to really like get together uh, and like can start working on my what would be my debut EP. And um, it was it was intense, but I loved it. She used to be signed to Motown Records, so you know she comes from that old school way of like training. So we were in like singing camps every day, writing camps every day. I'm talking like just. Hanging like we'll be like hanging out at the park, and then she would make all the artists that we were. Where she was working, like, we would just have to sing in front of everybody and perform, like at at like like on like at the spot, like no matter what. And like it just really developed me my confidence as a performer. She had a vocal training, you know, four days a week in the studio, five days a week. And her rule was we were not allowed to record unless we hit every note and knew every song word for word without looking at the lyric sheet. <laughs> <Wow. That's amazing. laughs> and at the time you're like, oh my God, this is so cruel, but it developed, it really developed you. And we put the EP out and then I started booking all these shows all over New York. You know, it was, in- it was really insane. And, you know, now I was, I was a person hiring my friends to work with me and to to, I hate the word backup dancer because I think, you know, I'm a dancer. And I think what we do, what dancers do is phenomenal. Like that work that they put in, like I can't do all that by myself, you know? So I always say my team, when I hire people to be on my team, it, that's the greatest feeling in the world to be able to put people in positions who you love and worked with before in a position to get a bigger opportunity. So it was, and, and that made it more fun because they knew my style, they knew what I liked, they knew who inspired me and, and all those things. and. That was happening for a while. So, you know, Crystal had decided that she wanted to kind of, you know, close her company. Um, she started booking work as an actress and I told her, you know, I said, Hey love, if like that's what you really want to do, then by all means, you should do that. Mm-hmm. Like I would, you know, don't, you know, you've been sacrificed so much for us, you know, me and she the the other artists that she had under her label for a long time. You know, you've been given your resources, your financial resources. You've been, like, really, like, just giving us all that you have. And it's okay to want something for yourself. And so when we decided to part ways, I teamed up with my friend Ebony Smith, who by this time was, she won her first Grammy doing the Hamilton soundtrack and, like, working on that project. And I was on social media, like, hey, guys, I'm, like, back in the studio. Produces hit me up. And then Ebony calls me and is, like, so you going to have everybody work on your album but me, right? But your friend. <laughs> and I'm like, "Where are you?" And she's like, "I'm at the the studio, come by." And I went by and then we started working on what are now like my is my, my current stuff. But I was always planning to move to LA. And it was just about waiting for like the right thing to kind of happen for me to want to move out here. But I always wanted to. Before.
0: So do you think today in your mind you've got like the previous Derek in New York? That you left behind when you moved to to LA is it a new life?
1: Um, not really. Cause to be honest with you, I kind of I think my struggle with moving to LA is kind of like everyone comes to LA because they want to you know dance or model or sing or act or perform, and I was already doing that before I moved here. So for me, it's just really about just kind of taking that path as a professional and just trying something new and and in, in, in a, doing what I love just yeah. in a different space. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of. It's always funny because I all everyone that I work with, I literally know from back home. <laughs> nice. Everyone, from the director that I'm gonna be working with on my, my new music videos to like I said to Ebony Smith. She's flown out here a few times to record me. Wow. <laughs> you know, um, and to write with me and to give me records, you know, the engineers, the dancers I uh, work like I it's everyone from back home. So I think for me, California was really just a chance to to just kind of come at peace and really just start that journey of my my soul search, I guess, and like figuring out what that's going to look like, hmm. figuring out what my future's want to look like. New York is such a fast paced city, and on the in L A is my chance to really kind of you know it's been it's hella slow compared
0: to really me. wow
1: everyone moves at a glacial pace, and but the cool thing is in L A it's like the culture here is it's okay to focus on doing your one thing and like focusing and giving all your energy on that thing today. Mm-hmm. Where in New York is kind of like, all right, you need to be doing 10 things in one day or you're not successful.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> and here it's like, Hey, you have a studio session, focus on going to your session and, and killing us Yeah. You know? And I kind of like that. So, but I like, I, I like both. I, I go back home as often as I can.
0: So Derek, I, I read that you, um, sometime mentor young LGBTQ um, okay. people. Do you still do that?
1: Ah, uh, yes. Uh, not in a virtual, not in a more virtual way. Not really in person. Um, so back in 2015, I teamed up with the reciprocity Foundation, and we raised money for underprivileged kids who were in shelters, LGBTQ, or HIV positive, to help them get uh, medications to help them get job skills, you know, help them get back in school, whether it was GED programs, they get like college courses to get into bigger schools. And I got invited to the White House Ooh. to meet President Barack Obama, wow. the real president. <laughs> and um, that was the same month that he legalized gay marriage across the country so it was My such God. an honor to be there that day yeah
0: how did it felt well, i mean you, you traveled as i said in the intro such a journey from who yeah. you were when you were a teenager to whom you've become an ambassador <laughs> uh, are you proud
1: i am proud i am proud i don't i haven't really thought about everything that that's happened because since quarantine really because i never really stopped you know what i mean I kind of think that the, the thing about the entertainment business is you are very, you're highly instructed to to do as much as you can, as quick as you can. <laughs> you know, that's always kind of the thing. So I think quarantine kind of forced all of us to really sit down and reflect. And as things are kind of coming back and I'm like putting together resumes and, you know, portfolios, I'm, it, that's when it hits me. Like, oh, my gosh, like I've done way more stuff than I ever thought I would do, you know. And it is still cool to be invited to to do more things or better, or better opportunities. Uh, I will say, I think in hindsight, the biggest reward is being able to get an opportunity from something you've done in the past. It's for me, that's always kind of like a thing. So I never realized, like I said, how much I've done because I feel like I have so much more to do and there's so much more that I really want to do, you know? Unfortunately, we're in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> and we can't really... Well, there's there, is, um, there we, is
0: something that you want to do, you told me, which is to, to have kids. Yes. Do you want to share something about it?
1: Yes. I want to be a daddy so bad. It's kind of like <laughs> something that I want. Um, you know, I, I think that I have a niece and a nephew, uh, little cousins. Um, one of my business partners out here, he has a three-year-old daughter. Um super cute and um kids kind of kids honestly teach you what unconditional love is because they don't have conditions they just want you to exist you know and i think at first when it's like you know kids are always like oh show can i show you this can i show you that but to be honest with you they just kind of want you present and i think that that type of connection is beautiful you know you don't have to worry about how many records you sell how many magazines you're pushing you know how many likes or followers do you have you know kids really like you for who you are you know and and how you make them feel and that's what they what they respond to and i would love to to, to be able to have to have my own children one day and be a great father and a great role model and and hopefully my kids want to be in show business like their daddy <laughs> fingers so crossed
0: did you start on the process of uh having kids or where do you stand there
1: uh we we've done research we've done research um my uncle's a lawyer and he actually is writing a book on um same-sex adoption and ivf um um ivf process because you know from state to state, the laws still vary yeah. and there's so many loopholes
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the law. And his suggestion is that, you know, legally that he feels like same sex couples should go into the any process of obtaining children with representation. <laughs> like, you know, like being represented by a lawyer. And also too, that people should, you know, that most couples should give themselves five to seven years to really plan because it's super expensive. But you also need to do a lot of research, a lot of research. But yeah, we've looked, we've, we've talked. So, so, that's, your, to talk so agencies.
0: that's your next project on, yeah, top, hope, on top of everything else,
1: you know, hopefully. I mean, I would definitely like to be making more money before I have kids. Kids <laughs> are not cheap.
0: So Derek, we are getting at the end of this uh, interview, fascinating interview. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's really inspiring. I have a question. What is America to you?
1: Oh, whoa. That's a very tough question given the current climate. You know, um, I think America to me, America to me needs a lot of work. We need to work on our compassion for human life. We need to work on our compassion for others we need to work out of these old school ass ways of thinking and, and we need to work on really creating better programming and better training for police officers. You know, we need better laws in place. We need to be protected and feel safe. Like we need a lot of developing to me. America needs a lot of developing for Mm -hmm. sure, Mm -hmm. for sure.
0: So you you I mean we we spoke about that uh, and I just quickly want to come back on that because it's it's not really something we touched on we touched on your uh your childhood you coming up uh and realizing that you are gay and dealing with that uh you having hiv and also coming to term with that and and trying to embrace embrace life whatever it cost what's your experience today being uh in the black lgbt community
1: um it's 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 definitely tough i will say that i i i've experienced more racism here in los angeles than i have in new york for some weird reason um i think that that's a part of the conversation that we aren't having when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement and people who are Black and that identify as lesbian, gay, queer, and transgender, you know, it's almost as if we're kind of erased from the conversation at most points in time. And I will also say too, if I could just shed some light on this really quickly, you know, there's also a lot of racism within the LGBT community as a whole, you know? Um, It is no secret that white gay men are very privileged still and that they still get better paying jobs and and bigger opportunities than us, you know? I been facing that as a model, as a performer, you know, you look at the budget sheets and I'm getting paid less and trust me, I'm kind of like, well, why, when I can clearly sing this song better than than this person, (laughs) but, um, you know, there's a lot of that conversation that, that hasn't been happening as well. And I think ultimately we need to understand that there are systematic laws. There are laws in place that systematically keep us at a disadvantage. So until people are willing to admit that and let that privilege go, we will always be in this rut. Because I kind of like these these things happen every couple of years. They, they never disappear. Like, it's almost like something happens and then the country tries to put a band-aid over a wound and then stabs at the same wound again. You know what I mean? It, it, it It's kind of crazy. And I think that, you know, specifically to the LGBTQ community, there needs to be more community togetherness and more uprising in that, where if you guys are understanding, the only reason why gay pride really exists is because there was a Black and a Latino transgender women who decided that they had enough of being bullied by police and by the cops and by the law. That's why you guys celebrate that. So when you see all this stuff and I don't see people who look like me in these ads in these campaigns at these bars at these events that 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 that's kind of that that does oh uh, it, it does us a great disservice at all and you know not being included in the black lives matter conversation it's, it's painful because we experience the same thing the same thing i get funny looks yes the cops have stopped me plenty of times in places where i've didn't understand why I got stopped in Beverly Hills a couple of nights ago, going coming going to the store for a friend. <laughs> she wasn't feeling well. You know, like that's, that still happens to us. You know, despite how people feel we live or how great they think our lifestyles are, we I still face that every day. You know, I have, my father and my uncles are black men, you know, who have been harassed by police. These people who have been killed could have been a family member of mine. So it's very, very painful, but we need to get it together like now.
0: Mm-hmm. is it something that you address in your songs
1: In the newer stuff yes
0: all right so that's <laughs> yes. coming out in october right yes okay well i think this is uh, the right conclusion we will be looking forward to your album in october thank you so much thank you for making time
1: Thank you guys for watching, everyone. I love you so much. Jessica, I adore you so much. As soon as I get to New York, I should be in New York for like a week or two. I found out Friday. We definitely have to hang out. I love you so much. Nat from France, thank you so much for checking in. Nicholas, thank you for being patient with us with our whole uh, technical glitch. I appreciate it so much. Stan, thank you for having me. Everyone who's watching this live or who will watch it or listen to this podcast, thank you so much. Remember always, as you fight, find your inner strength. Make sure you connect with your inner peace.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Derek.